Diane, it's Sunday, 11.58 in the morning. I'm sending you the latest episode of season two of Horror Vanguard's Twin Peaks Retrospective. I think you're going to get a kick out of this one. All right, would you would you like to lead us into episode nine? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, hello, everybody. Let me just pick up my tape recorder. Um, hello, hello, <laughs> uh, HV listeners. Uh, it's it's me, it's John, and I am back in the town of Twin Peaks, uh, continuing the investigation into season two of David Lynch. Uh, David Lynch's magnum opus of a television show, joined as always by the log lady of the crypt. Ash, how are you, my friend? <laughs> oh, I'm 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 doing I'm doing really good, and and my my log has something to tell the audience. Um, and if you listen carefully, you can hear it. Uh, but I will endeavor to translate in any event. Um, I believe you can tell me if I've gotten this message wrong. Uh, but the message from the log is that. More people need to go to horrorvanguard.com or patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. And for the price of just a few bucks a month, get bonus episodes, get early access, and a host of other goodies. Is, am I close? Am I close? That feels you like you might be close. Nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, we are talking oh. about episode nine or... Uh, for uh, uh, the other numbering system, episode two, coma. <laughs> this is this is now, now that Twin Peaks officially has a, a third, a second season, uh, according to our podcast. Uh, the show itself has two numbering systems, technically three numbering systems, because there are a total number of episodes of which this is episode ten. This is episode two of season two, and this is also episode nine. Uh, based on the naming convention of naming them episodes, not counting the pilot. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, after last week's reintroduction to the denizens, citizens, and tormented psychological monsters <laughs> of this sleepy American town, we continue our uh, adventures into uh, the kind of seething libidinal underbelly of American consciousness. Um, where would you where would you like to start? Where would you like to begin? That, that is a wonderful way to put this, to, to borrow a phrase from our friends at Weird Signal in one of their recent episodes. Uh, uh, this is fucked America vibes here. Yes, 100%. <laughs> but really, but really like, but really like, that's the universal category of American vibes, right? <laughs> that's true. Like, we do only whole, have one flavor. Yeah, isn't the whole, isn't the whole point of the show in some ways, this idea that like, the the American idyll actually, if you if you just peer under the floorboards just a little bit, there's all of this kind of weird psychological torment just frothing away. Oh, you said weird psychological torment, and that means wacky sound effects here. We get to talk about Major Briggs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about. I the psychological warfare expert. Let's talk about the U.S. military. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> so, so uh, in this episode, Major Briggs has an encounter with the Log Lady, right? And I think it's really interesting to ju juxtapose these two characters because the Log Lady is a true mystic. 
in, in the sense of the word, right? She is, she is absolutely communing with, with a barely traceable plane of thought. You know, however we want to explore the intricacies of that, whether we approach it from a, a spiritual, a religious, a philosophical, a transcendental, however we want to look at it. Like she is she is weaving the cosmic threads of our fates into into a tapestry we can barely understand. And then you've got Major Briggs who like can very easily quote some kind of like say he can say things that have the shape of philosophy. But when laid over his life and his existence, like the log lady is a true ascetic, you know, like she she lives this half sane world communing with this sawed off log. And then Major Briggs is a major in the United States military. Right. But we get this this really interesting exchange where uh, uh, the log lady says, oh, you you wear many shiny things and and uh, ask him if he's proud. And Major Briggs said achievement is its own reward. Pride merely obscures it. And I think that that's really interesting because on its surface, like that's a very commendable thing to say. Right. Achievement is its own reward. Pride does obscure, you know, the, the joy you should have in your accomplishments to a certain degree, you know, and depending on how pride is expressed. Right. Um, but like on another on another level, like what do those medals signify? What, what exactly is he proud of? Mm-hmm. You know, is, is he is he proud of like doing doing some coups in South America? Like, is that the thing for which he has great pride? You know, like, like his, the locus of his pride comes from one of the darkest possible places, his achievements rather. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is this, there's this notion of like, what does service mean? What does service mean if, uh, a kind of big theme of this episode is secrecy, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't really know what Major Briggs does, um, you don't really know what a lot of the clues that Cooper is working out from being given by the giant really means. You don't really know yet how all of the pieces start to fit together. Although by this, the end of this episode and the next one, we do get more of a a kind of feeling for it. And like, to me, one of the big kind of themes of Twin Peaks as a show is about, Mm -hmm. um, this notion that like there is no such thing as a secret that every yeah. sec- every like every secret uh like has a kind of like psychic pressure that it exerts and eventually uh, it manifests itself in some way mhm and this is why i think what you have immediately after that is you have a weird scene uh with uh the the um the ledges right that's in is this mm-hmm. is that in co- yeah that is in coma I'm yes just, uh and the ben and jerry talking about the ledges they're talking trying to uh they're trying to decide which of you know there's the fake ledger which showed that the mill was turning a profit and there's the actual ledger which shows that it was having money kind of siphoned out of it and they have this like honestly it's wild because it's basically an incredibly marxist point which is that the transformation of a natural resource into an asset does all kinds of like weird occult stuff so they Mm -hmm. basically go they don't really know what to do with these two kind of arcane texts texts that they've got in front of them and yeah they could burn either and there would be advantages to that 
what what do you what do you think about the stuff with the with the with the ledgers with the finance the finance angle I, I think I think that that scene I think is really fun. It's it's like this really exciting sequence, and we kind of see new Leland. What what one of the things that Leland is going to be up to lately in season two, and that's he is kind of the court gesture to the to the Baron Horns Empire. Uh, uh, it's it's his it's going to be his role now to to kind of like just just hoist the horns by their own petard in a way. And like, you know, because we have them and they're trying to cook the books, right? They're trying to figure out which which of these documents will be better for them financially and better for them in terms of the white collar crime that they're up to, like white collar crime in quotes there, because it is the far worse type of crime in terms of damage to society. Um, and then you've got Leland who comes in and Leland like Leland did, did the, the, the right thing. Leland called their business partners and said there'd been a big disaster in the local area that that could have wide-ranging repercussions in the community you know like leland leland did the thing that a that a that a noble person would do right like noble of heart not of class standing you know and like but no that accidentally screws all their crime stuff because their crime stuff relies on like you were saying this network this complicated network of lies that that are now so complex that like the the value of the truth or the lie is kind of irrelevant yeah yeah, it is a fun scene. It's a fun scene because, like, uh, the thing about Ben and Jerry is that they they love scheming. They they mm-hmm. like middle aged men in Twin Peaks love to do crime. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they love they love to do crime. Um, yeah, crime uh, or adultery. They, they, those are the two. Yeah, crime, adultery, and kind of uh, work out their their weird, weird sexual neuroses. Um, that's what they that's what they really love to do uh, and both of them just have such kind of glee in, in what they're doing right yeah they seem they seem so genuinely happy with like not it's not even the profit anymore it's it's just the 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 chicanery and the farce of their own little criminal empire i and the, i think i think this brings up this brings up uh one eye jacks quite nicely yes mm-hmm and this, the the kind of the literalizing, the literal like construction of this idea of like uh, crime that that which happens in secret and their own sort of like lib- their own libidinal economy, right? To to put it in Deleuzian terms, right? It's all bound mm-hmm. up in one eyed jacks. It's bound up in um, in in essentially the domination and exploitation of women. Um, and this is what's happened to Audrey. Audrey Audrey has ended up there because Audrey is trying to uh get involved in the investigation and find out what's happened to Laura. Um so so what do you think of that, the way that the show kind of interlinks the 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 kind of social and sexual dynamics of the, these characters with with crime and with one eyed jacks particularly? So I think this is really interesting, right? Because like so uh, we we learn in early season two that the the proprietor of One Eyed Jacks is none other than Ben Horn. Dun, dun, there's a twist, and so he's he's inadvertently now conti- continuing his kind of arc as this incestuous Gothic patriarch. He has now forced his own daughter into sex work, you know, like inadvertently through his own financial machinations, he has brought this reality about. 
and I think one of the interesting things that this this you know like can be used to highlight is like what what is the kind of like what are the hinge points of like quote unquote criminality and sex work, right? Like 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 sex work is heavily criminalized. It is something that is you know like the 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 legal branch breaks upon its back, and like it's it's sex workers, right? Like they're they're the people who experience the force of the crime. But what is kind of like causing crime and, and, and like like a step back, not not people who are doing acts that we deem to be criminal, but like, why is the thing a crime? And and we see it's it's Ben Horn. Ben Horn is the reason why it's a crime. <laughs> and that's because yeah. Ben Horn can can shell game his finances through crime in a way that he could never do through a legal a legal place or let alone a unionized shop. Unionize one eyed jacks. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and once again, right? Once again, there's this doubling between Audrey and Laura, um, which uh, is kind of crystal clear. Laura, Laura ended up at One Eye Jacks. Uh, Audrey's there now. There's the kind of like strange Freudian familial relationships. All of this is getting played out again. There's a kind of like circularity to a lot of this, right? There's a there's a sort of wheel of fate, as it were um that that audrey is kind of going through and it, and as you pointed out last episode it's a deeply kind of gothic narrative mm-hmm. um right she's she is trapped in the labyrinth of of the the gothic melodrama that is being uh you know a young woman in twin peaks um yeah i i guess i guess what do you think of the way that the show is kind of handling that her her initial arc yeah, I think I think this is this is again this is again really interesting because still decades later, like I, I think a, a lot of people have a read on Audrey Horn that's like way too simplistic, as as the kind of wayward troublemaker bad girl. When no, like the show is very explicit that that's Laura. Laura is the wayward troublemaker bad girl who kind of hurts everyone around her and, and is and is chaotic and unorganized. A- Audrey is simply young. You know, like she she just doesn't have the years and the experience yet to to better correlate her intent with her action, and and so it it appears to be chaotic, but it's really just inexperienced, and and I think like we're 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 kind of like fleshing that distinction out much more clearly as we go into this, you know, and like it's it's Audrey who is able to like stay at One Eyed Jack's longer to kind of like pull the crime tether out of that one to draw out her father's involvement to do these things whereas like laura was kind of just swept up in it for a brief moment and then her own chaos swept her away and i think the distinction between the 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 two of them and this is something that i think appears in a lot of like classic gothic literature too is there's this kind of like paradoxical agency to a lot of gothic heroines that they are heavily confined into uh, appropriately enough a a metaphoric or literal patriarchal labyrinth but they have a, a a strange agency within that and I think we're we're seeing a contemporary riff on that with Audrey. Yeah, and I, again, I I think the this show is super interesting for uh, a a kind of serious engagement with like a, a kind of a psychological horror often often does treat women particularly incredibly, especially young women, very very simplistically and very very kind of condescendingly. Um, and I think. What's really what's really good about the show is Audrey. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Audrey's character particularly because I think it's just she's one of the most interesting, interesting and complex 
and conflicted uh, people in the show. Um, but there was something else that happens in this episode, which I thought you particularly would have some interesting things to say about, is like we start talking about Tibet again. Ancient Tibetan history. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> this This is... Like we start to get some exciting stuff. Albert's character is is becoming I- I- increasingly awesome. Or awesome, I don't know. That's, that's a bit too fanish. Increasingly interesting. Well, it, there's a double act. There's a depth. double act that's starting to happen. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so in, in this in this episode, we we, we see the first kind of like a re- real blossoming of, of of that tree that's been nurtured between Albert and Coop. And and Coop is talking about uh, events of t- Tibetan history that occurred thousands of years ago, and and uh, to to which Albert responds with like, "Oh, I I prefer uh, what, what does he say? It was um, he says something like, I, I prefer to focus what's going on in our own century." And then Cooper is like, "Ah, you you may be surprised at how much they have to do with each other, you know, like doing the standard kind of Cooper Cooper Rye commentary." <laughs> but I I really really love this as a juxtaposition of of two two entirely separate ways of engaging with the world, and the kind of like very very interesting criticisms and utilities we can kind of pull out of each of them. Yeah. So, so for example. Uh, for for example, they're they're both they're both correct, like like we're, you know, like in any good duality, right? Like the real answer isn't one of them has a better position than the other. It's it's synthesizing the two together, right? Like like Cooper Cooper is correct. There is so much we can pull from learning from the past is literally all we have, you know. But like uh, you know, like he, his his counterpart is also correct. Albert's also right. If all we did is kick the can of the past back and forth, we would be nothing more than like, um, actually, if Archduke Franz Ferdinand would have been assassinated two months later, um, this and it would have been nothing more than like comic book fanboy commentary about the the machinations destroying our planet. I mean, isn't the point though that so? All right, a slightly left field take. Hit it. The show treats the investigation of crime as essentially an investigation of historiography. Yes. The point is to try and is not to find out guilt because there is no such thing as individual guilt, really, mm-hmm. not really, but actually to understand something of the kind of processes of immediate lived experience. History history is something that is made lived and then died through by ordinary people, right? So really what they're having a debate about is modes of historiography. Uh, And this, it's a kind of conflict between presentism and a sort of mystic historicism. And you're completely right. The, the obvious answer is to, is to see those things as kind of constantly informing one another. But this is the this is the big the big kind of like driving force between Alfred and Cooper is that they're fundamentally distinct epistemologies. So so you are one absolutely right as always, and two you wrote something really interesting in our notes that that I'm very excited for you to to crack into, and that's the question of madness. Well, at a certain point, right? This is something that 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 comes up with these characters like Alfred who have like more traditional modes of knowing 
the question becomes, what does it mean to know something, right? So what's interesting is like the way that a lot of the town treats the log lady, for example. This mm-hmm. is someone who who clearly has vision, like Major Briggs has visions. People have visions. They report visions yeah. to the police. And it's like, none of this is ever dismissed. None of this is, uh, there's no kind of like arch rationalist who goes, well, actually, mm-hmm. Neil deGrasse Tyson has not filtered into the consciousness <laughs> of Twin Peaks, right? And so, <laughs> like, at at what point, I, the, the person that I'm thinking of here is like, um, uh, I'm just making sure which, which. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, while you're looking that up. Neil deGrasse Tyson voice. Um, actually, the owls are what they seem because they're just birds. Well, yeah, it's his. It's Cooper's ex partner, right? Cooper's ex partner has mm-hmm. gone mad. Has gone mad, right? Has been yeah. institutionalized, and it's like, hang on, in the world of Twin Peaks, what does that mean? And secondly, the other question seems to be, what kind of knowledge does that give you access to? Because it isn't necessarily pathologized, right? Existing on a slightly mm-hmm. different plane of reality doesn't seem to be pathologized in, in this show. So it's really interesting that Cooper actually seems quite nervous by the idea that like his ex-partner might be in the mix somehow. Um, what do you think about that? Oh, I have takes. I, I think I think the show uh, that this particular aspect of the show uh, offers us a great approach to like mad liberation, because we we like not not only do we have characters like the log lady, right, and a character who will be introduced to you shortly who has like severe agoraphobia, but like and these people are treated very normally, you, you know, like like there there is difference, uh, but there there is not negation or criminality or discrediting embedded into that difference right you know like like the the log like you know like people people react strangely to the presence of the log lady carrying a log at first but it's the kind of strangeness where you would react strangely to like i I don't know a juggler walking up and talking to you it's just kind of not common it's quite literally strange but everyone takes her seriously everyone recognizes that there's something to be had in her account of the world you know, like there, there, there is like a deeper social value held within the log lady that only she can express. Mm. And we also see with Major Briggs that these phenomena happen in degrees, but are very common. You know, if we widen the field of that degree, that even people who are high ranking government officials can have these kinds of idiosyncratic perceptions, these visions. Yeah. And I think the fact that, you know, like uh, uh, Coop's former partner is, you know, like incarcerated for his insanity and has, has crossed some kind of line. What, what that kind of like to, to me expresses and like the thing that I kind of like pull out of that is not a, a distinction in kind, but a distinction in proximity. You know, like his his insanity is no longer useful or is running contra to the machinations of state and power. Therefore, it needs to be incarcerated and held away, right? It, it is it is running against the grain of the direction in which capital points when all of these other people are, like like you said, reporting their, their visions to the police. And well, this is a little problematic in the context of Twin Peaks because of how they code good and evil. But I think it is it, it does kind of like flush out a good introduction to a discourse. Well, let's kind of dig into this and let's talk about Let's talk about things be not being what they seem, particularly <laughs> owls. Yes. 
So this yes, is one of the clues that that Cooper is given by the the giant that appears in the first episode of the second season. The owls mm-hmm. are not what they seem. Um, how do how do you interpret this? So so I think um, just just really quickly, the, you just brought to my mind the, uh, the one of the other clues that the giant gives him is without chemicals he points. Mm-hmm. which which is you know like we we have the one-armed man ceasing to take his medication and then gaining a, a much more powerful a, a sight that he was repressing which again fits into a lot of like mad liberation discourse and i think that slots in really well to the owls are not what they seem in that discourse but rather than following that line <laughs> i'm gonna pivot to talk about funko pops again <laughs> Uh, because like the thing, the thing that really sticks out to me is that the owls are not what they seem is one of the most popular lines from Twin Peaks. It, it has become to be its own signifier for the show, right? Like, like along with a zigzag stripey pattern and, and, you know, like damn fine, like it, it, it has become to embody aspects of the show that supersede the limitations of the show itself. And I think it's interesting as how that's come to happen, right? There's a kind of hollowness to the owls are not what they seem, right? There's a kind of like funkified degradation that has happened to that term, to that like entry point into a mystic discussion is now just like something printed on the side of a mug from an Etsy shop. There's a kind of reduction happening here. What are are some of your thoughts? Well, I think that's a good kind of meta point about the wider cultural discourse about the show. Um, but there's, 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 there's a couple of ways that we can read this, right? So like we can read it almost cosmologically because Major Briggs comes along and part of his job is, is to, he is the, 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 you know, the, the, the spy for the, of the galaxy. Uh, (laughs) and he reports that their radio telescopes have picked up on this message. The owls are not what they seem. Something is trying to get in touch. Mm Mm-hmm. Secondly, we can kind of read this in the context of kind of the natural world, right? The the idyllic mountains and forests and waterfalls of Twin Peaks. Um, when do the owls appear? They mostly appear at dusk in the show. Um, and there is a sort of like, there's a kind of liminality to them as creatures, right? In this space and at that time. They appear on the kind of edge of things. It's a very common idea to use birds as omens of things, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting to think about how it, how it has become a kind of like cultural shorthand. But I also think that maybe it's... Uh, this is going to make me sound very, 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 very uh, kind of pretentious, I go. think. But like, I think oh, I, pe- love, I love whatever you're about to say. I think people miss the fact that Twin Peaks is in some ways very straightforward right yes. it has a, it has a very distinct aesthetic and it has a very kind of um uh it has a very uh, deliberate way of constructing its stories and that's true of all david lynch projects but it's also it is also very clear about its its themes and the ideas that it's trying to explore it's very clear about all of that um but i think a lot of people like to just take the kind of weird moments and actually just remove them from the wider aesthetic frame that gives them meaning which is you know this is exactly what you were kind of critiquing and so i'm like can we not just see it as a sort of warning 
right? It's a warning. It's a warning about something. It, it could be, and like any good bit of imaginative writing, you can read it on multiple levels between not mm. being kind of just taken in by the idyllic picture of nature that you're surrounded by to seeing these owls as kind of harbingers, as omens, as representatives of something, to seeing them as a kind of like marker of a kind of cosmological disturbance. What, oh, what I, do you I think, think I've, I, I think your reading is perfect because the owl as a symbol fits into a broader like set of American cosmological signifiers. And and the owl is is often mapped back onto the alien gray. Right? Like and this and this appears in a whole host of novels and movies and like UFOlogy, right? Like the the connection between whether you want to read like sightings of alien greys as people misinterpreting uh, seeing an owl, which owls can often be very large and they have the kind of oval shaped head, if you will, with the large reflective eyes or, you know, kind of more spooky connections therein. And I think it's, it's, this is a very inviting phrase, right? Like it's, it's not only, it has that cellar door quality. It's just pleasurable to say the owls are not what they seem. And, and you're absolutely right. It is inviting us to kind of step beyond the natural, right? Like to, to step beyond reductionist readings and simplistic things and to kind of attain a wider sight. And speaking of attaining a wider sight, would you like to talk about musicals? <laughs> uh, yeah. Can, 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 we, can we talk about uh, Just You and I? Can we talk about the <laughs> Oh, yeah. Little, yeah that- just You and I are talking. Hey. hey zing who's on third uh <laughs> well i i i i thought that was there's been a lot of music in these opening two episodes and i was curious to know what, what do you think about that that song particularly so um, this this i think this is one of those things where now because we have twin peaks uh the return it kind of fundamentally changed how i see that forever uh, because twin peaks the return is almost in a way like a return to American bandstand. It's American bandstand for fucked America. You know, like it's, it's, we have this like pageantry of American excess decay and collapse. And then you get a band performing, you know, then Trent Reznor pops up on stage and hits you with a number. Like, and we kind of see the, the, the predecessors of that, right? Twin Peaks is a deeply musical show. You know, Angelo, um, Angelo Badalamenti's score, it, it defines a whole aspect of Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks would arguably be so much weaker without it. And now we have, like, the show is kind of like, we have these, like, diegetic music sources emerging from the show. Like, I just think this is, like, phenomenal. Wait, what are some of your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think I think there's this super interesting use of diegetic and non-diegetic music in the show. Um and I, it's, it's like, it's genuinely like haunting little moment between the three, uh, Donna, um, Donna James and, uh, Maddie. Um, and it's a great way of actually, it's called just you and I, and there are three of them, you know, it's just like, it's just like, mm-hmm. what a, what a yep. lovely moment of just like, uh, visual narrative, right. Setting up yes. all of these intense, like emotional psychological pressures and fracture points between the three of them and unsurprisingly this all blows up particularly in the next episode um so i love it i think it's a great it's a sort of a really great enhancement of the um constant use of music and yeah bad Lamenti's 
kind of noirish jazz touches in a lot of the score just still remain just like mm-hmm. unbeatably good and i think i think i think also uh just you and i ties into a lot of your your comments on like the gothic and doppelgangers within twin peaks because who who's you know maddie is it's it's the same actress as laura palmer it's literally laura's double in the show and we have like again that's another layer of this kind of like gothic doubling that's going on here we have we have james hurley falling who was in love with laura now falling in love with laura's doppelganger and in so many ways like the whole town is a doppelganger of laura palmer and the song is just like I, I you know it's meant to be a love song but in so many ways it's a dirge to twin peaks oh, what a great point what a great point um should we i mean we've gone over half an hour again should we should we wrap it there <laughs> let's 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 do it well thank you everyone for joining us for season two episode nine coma of our twin peaks retrospective uh we look forward to joining you tomorrow for season two episode three episode 10 episode i don't remember uh the man behind the glass We have more questions than we have answers. A new episode. New episode. Diane, it's Sunday. You'll get a kick out of this one. If the long history of the perception of owls reveals one thing, it is that we have more questions than we have answers.